Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Joseph Amato, Emeritus Professor of History and Rural and Regional Studies at Southwest Minnesota State University. He has authored numerous books on such unusual subjects as, or historical subjects at least, as Walking, Dust, and Surfaces. A past guest on Historically Thinking, when he discussed both regional and family history, I'm pleased to welcome him again to discuss his new book, Everyday Life, How the Ordinary Became Extraordinary. Joe, it's great to talk to you again. Well, Al, it's always a pleasure to be with you both on, on the interview and off the interview. <laughs> well, this is uh, this is a curious book. Uh, it's uh, I, I said as I said to you before we began recording. It seems to me there's a little bit of everything you've written. I mean, everything that you've written, which is a lot of stuff, is in this book, and it's also sometimes. Um, uh, for philosophers, it'll be too historical, and for historians, it might too, be too philosophical. Um, but uh, you've written that if um, elsewhere that if any one goal guides my writing, it is the search for meaning in, in being. The search for meaning in being. Um, what did you mean by that? Well, uh, I was perhaps one of the children, or I think there are a lot of children who were struck by my own mortality uh, in a way not being was <laughs> that's a, here's a little paradox the possibility the reality of not being I'm speaking as a philosopher of course was always present in my being hmm. uh, through my images through what I saw with my grandmother ever dressed in black going to the cemeteries some of the conversations, uh, well, all the things, somebody, the death of an uncle, uh, watching watching both grandparents age, uh, it, it, it was real and imposing. So when I went off to university, I often file level of depth of meaning, did a system or a way of thinking, was it capable of not answering, nobody can answer, but was it capable of coming to terms with temporality or mortality? And can I give one quick example? Please, please. Uh, uh, there was the great historiographer uh, and historian Ortega Gazette, who was also a philosopher and a doctor. And I liked Ortega tremendously, for he was using a proposition I took to, we are our histories. But already as an undergraduate, I think I was a I was a junior, and I, I read some of his works in Spanish, some in English, but I knew not the whole corpus, but a pretty good share of his works. I was interested that he did not come to terms with death like other Spanish thinkers did, and certainly my Russian novelists that I liked, like Dostoevsky, they, 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 I, so I considered that the temporality 
quote-unquote change, uh, or more technically now for us historians as it gets in the technical field, of the word event uh-huh. as what couldn't be omitted from deep and serious thought. And I always felt, and this is the last sentence, I promise, I always <laughs> felt that time had to be met and understood and enacted by myth. I might even say dance uh, in the sense of ritual preceding myth, actually, in a lot of uh, fundamental ways. So I started philosophy and history as uh, I'm teasing as a timekeeper. Mm-hmm. Well, all that is in the book. Um, you begin, uh, and this is, you know, it, for. It's, it, it, this follows a rough narrative arc from the uh, prehistory uh, to the present day, uh, but it's not an obvious narrative arc. Let's put that. Uh, 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 but you begin with a uh, material culture, uh, really. You begin with things and tools. Uh, you have a very arresting quote, uh, at least to, to my mind. Things made into instruments form distinct landscapes. Uh, what do you mean by that? Formed, what did I write? I, I didn't hear they, Things made into instruments form distinct landscapes. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, perhaps as a lot of the people who write on the larger view of history going back to the Neolithic, uh, the seed bag or the hoe, <laughs> or, or finally something that allows you to till with an animal, uh, agriculture shapes a landscape, a shovel, which is hard to make a good shovel. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it takes some metallurgy. A shovel, uh, a hammer, a metal nail. Uh, fire. Fire, yeah. Uh, all of these are, 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 are instruments. And then if we add the tools, Al, which I was taken by this, it's not my own theory. It comes from mm-hmm. the uh, no, no. anthropologist Gamble. If we add the tools, all the things, the gathering tools we have, if we want to call them tools, we usually don't, but baskets, nets, but all the things that we collect things in and carry them around in or cook them in, containers. So our world, as we humans start to develop uh, from the agricultural revolution on, our world is made, our environment is made, and our own work is made out of our hands and our bodies as we control the landscape, both exploit it, dominate it, and nothing like control of water. So we don't just think of this as earth. Water is much more difficult to conquer and deal with, but it's a crucial element. Moving on water and literally eventually damming, draining water and doing all the things we must with water if we're going to work the earth. This is, uh, of course, the tool is the extension of the body, Um, and uh, in in some for for you, I guess, in some sense, is uh, must be understood as an extension of the body. Is is that right? Yeah, uh, you know where that comes from. The book I wrote called On Foot. 
And again, this isn't most of this is not my own thinking. I would like to think it's a result of my own mulling, mm-hmm. but it's not my own thinking. But when we became bipedal, which is much earlier than we became what we call humans before we became Homo sapiens, we became bipedal. Uh, what we did was quite amazing. We freed the hand and we freed the nose and the whole head from looking down or being riveted to smells. But we put the head, particularly the eyes, so we can see what is immediate, right right down to the point of a needle. And at the same time, we could see the tip of a distant mountain. We were able to toggle between what's right touchable before us. And of course, with that kind of eye, and then we join it to an index finger and a thumb that come together. And we have a new instrument in our own bodies, which anticipates then all we can do with tools, which can be very fine, or we can use tools as weapons of all sorts. So hand and eye, and somewhat freeing ourselves from nose, And, and walking as a human bipedally, it, well, it has some arthritic problems and aging problems, uh, basically is a better way than the animals go. Uh, the, the line uh, I used to use is a, a good old peasant can probably outwalk a horse in a three-day race. The horse mm-hmm. will end up going lame, exhausted, end up so hungry, you got to find a field for it, where the trudge of the peasant uh, opens vast spaces to him, even if at most he covers 10 miles a day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, and here you're drawing on another uh, line of your thought. Um, the body is a set of surfaces. Uh, what, does that, what does that mean? Um, what's the body as a set of surfaces? Well, our surfaces... Uh, I mean, I think it's very interesting. I'm I'm making a little philosophic point here, but how much of nature, just starting with nature, interacts with one part, interacts with the other, right on the surface, a skin, a feather, feather with air, you might say, or feather with wind, or our skin with sensation, or an animal's hide in relation to cold, uh, are the eyes attraction to light. Uh, uh, the fingers touch. Our world is about surfaces. So if we're going to make the world or have it be our own, be more uh, warmer in it, be more comfortable in it, or even eventually start to make shapely and beautiful objects, we have to control surfaces. So in great part, rather than going into the depth as I did at the beginning, and I did when I'm talking about depth and how do we make sense and meaning, and another part, our lives are immediate. They're only skin, rather than saying it's it's superficial or only skin deep, uh, I'm prone to say that's pretty damn deep if you think about skin. <laughs> um a surface, a type of uh, of surface, an extension of surface of our body is is a wall. 
and you lay great emphasis as a uh, the creation of cities for you in world history is really the is the creation the importance of walls um, yes. how so well I mean walls are very important again uh, if I go back to the word container uh, a wall in in the minimal form protects us against the outside world but it also secures a space that we can control or define like you mentioned fire early put put a ring around a fire <laughs> and then get a shield of trees behind it treating mm-hmm. that as your wall and you've begun to create micro worlds. Yeah. That is one of the things that humans do. They do it with their hearths, their fireplaces. They do it with their little corners or what the Russians used to call the uh, uh, ugo, the krasny ugo, the red corner, the corner where you put your little uh, uh, icons in mm-hmm. or, or or there's the corner of the, as I just allude there to, there's the, the walls of the church so we can have a temple mm-hmm. uh, it, so, it, walls are crucial for us to define a city to define a home uh, uh, to, to shape a canal human beings in a certain way with walls draw the landscape on which they live, but they also think and conceive. It's all those are going on, mm-hmm. and that's what's so hard. You can't write all of this. If you did, you'd never get to the end of the <laughs> sentence. Yeah, we, when we, I'm we, writing, one of the problems. That's why I probably have what sounds like almost generalizations of the worst sort or aphorisms. I'm trying to conclude or hammer down a subject that could be infinitely developed. I mean, I, I find the, somebody wanting to criticize, say, my work on surfaces, they're disappointed that I didn't just dwell on one thing or develop one thing, but then they overlook. I'm in the business of trying to provide a very large view of things. I'm not in the business of trying to do that by just a micro study, which I have done when I do my local and regional studies. I work on the micro scale, but when I write this kind of history, I'm actually in the tradition of grand history, the big <laughs> the yeah. movement of, of big things. I, I love the idea that uh, it's true that I could show you this. We could look at, the, take a picture of a grove with and without a fire ring. And, mm-hmm. and that fire ring changes everything about it. Um, all of a sudden oh, that's it goes, a nice thought. That's a nice thought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it becomes, uh, and all of a sudden that log becomes a, a backrest. It becomes, it, it defines it. So walls categorize walls don't, aren't just tools. They also are, they're, they're they set things apart. Um, yeah. and, the, very, and, and the, the most element, the most elementary, um, idea of sacrality is walls, walls perform that. Oh, that's that's just well. You got me thinking about this. At the same time, the fire causes shadows, lights, images, and the shadow. I mean, the fire is not only a thing that metamorphoses all sorts of things. We put them in, we melt them, we burn them. Mm-hmm. But around the fire, we ring our dreams and our dances. Mm-hmm. So. 
in a way we incorporate, as we incorporate water into our lives and earth into our lives, so we incorporate fire, which mm-hmm. substantiates one of the starting points, in my opinion, particularly, uh, I'm sure others, but it really, a lot of the Indian thought, North American Indian thought, I'm sure would qualify, but I'm thinking of Greek thought, and it's 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 attempt to begin a philosophy around elements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so walls and they create cities. Um, you know, I've just been rereading um, some Peloponnesian War stuff for a freshman class I'm teaching, and it's uh, you know speaking of walls setting apart and, and all the rest of it. At 430 BC, you could have walls around Athens, and the Spartans say, "Well, dang, you know, walls. Don't know what to do about mm-hmm. that." Um, it 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 preserves you, and, and by 405, uh, technology has uh, progressed to such an extent that you can now knock down those walls. There, there's uh, there's a, there's they've learned how to siege warfare. Um, but the, as you move into the middle ages, um, you, uh, stress the metaphor uh, and meaning as the spirit of everyday life. Could, could you explain that? Well, let me, you want me to explain metaphor in the yeah, yeah. Uh, metaphor in, in terms in terms of our relation to our thinking or, or even more broadly our action and our, 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 our place in life? Let's start broadly and move down to thinking, if that can be called or, narrow. Or, well, I mean, metaphor is, Aristotle said the movement of metaphor is the true sign of genius. And metaphor... <laughs> Metaphor is the way we connect everything to everything else. We can have logic, we can have mathematics, we can have other, uh, 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 we can have social science explanation based on causality or based on causality plus probability. But when it's all over and done, for us to move, think, imagine, dream. We, 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 and, and we do need images. I don't want to cut out images or just simple things we perceive, but we do need to connect things. And the way we connect things that are not easily connected or just don't necessarily stand together is metaphor. It's perhaps, it's because we can draw a metaphor, we can make a machine. I'm drawing a metaphor between power, nature, and what we want. I mean, there's that crossing. Uh, and our language is fundamentally metaphorical in the terms of connection, like the word up. What, what is up but the beginning of a metaphor? Mm-hmm. Or what are all the prepositions that link one thing to another? but a type of metaphor, like he was lost in the big city. I mean, what the heck is lost? <laughs> and what is the big city? I mean, that's, that's really quite abstract to make a statement like that. If, if, if you, if, if one can follow what I'm driving mm-hmm. at in if that we, case, if, if we break it down and, and yeah, we break it down and stop taking it for granted, then we see that it's very abstract. Yes, well, it, it's it's back to the question of myth. If we want to talk about winter 
coming and killing and spring giving rebirth, we're right at two primary metaphors of time, death and birth. And we never really get removed from those because they go to language. I, I, I've written, maybe you, you saw that once for the magazine, historically speaking, a little essay called Then. Then and then again. And, mm-hmm. and anyhow, the basic argument is the then of next is not the then of therefore. Hmm. But often we have to connect things not by causality, but we literally connect them by suddenly. There's that great line in Italian poetry where suddenly it was uh, evening. I mean, we live in a lot of suddenly and by surprise. <laughs> oh, this hmm. might be ju- juxtaposition. It's as if being or all things are thrown against the wall. But they do have patterns. They might have connections. But our mind, the great sense maker, or our minds, the great myth makers, or our minds, the great metaphor users, weave this together. And our primary device for the weaving is language, which however put, sets us apart from animal communication. It's not that we don't communicate like animals with our language and our gestures, but it's truly, and to use a metaphor, light years away. It's light years away from what they do with language. Yeah. Um, Let's move forward a little bit in the book and talk about time. Um, you you write historians must tell time. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, again, uh, say you have any place in the world, what differentiates that place? Well, today all kinds of things differentiate a place, but certainly an elemental um, definition of place is change. It it was this, then it was that, before, later, possibly, hypothetically. All of our modes of even I wish it were otherwise, I pray it not be so, we, we move in time, therefore the places we've made our own move in time, and that way, Places in part don't exist just out there. They exist in our mixture of metaphors, feelings, memory, and they belong to our mind. If all this doesn't sound too abstract, I'm beginning to feel like I'm going to get a job at the Heidegger chair the way I'm working here. <laughs> so okay, is, well, is, it, is, it, uh, is it the fact that historians study change over time that makes us historians? I think so. I mean, this is a big debate. One of my teachers was Aiden White, mm-hmm. who would reduce time to literary tropes drama, comedy, irony, satire. That that's he said whenever we tell him a story as an historian we we have to use those tropes. Other people have turned history over 
and with lots of insights and lots of gained knowledge, but have turned it over to what we call economics or we call sociology or we call anthropology. But I think still the core historians come to terms with events. I mean, that's very old-fashioned. My other teacher was uh, A.W. Salamone, who wrote on Italian and European history, roughly from Napoleon to the present, the old traditional things. And he wrote, of course, on Italian unification, Bismarck, etc. But he felt we can think about events, we can represent events, we can explore them in different ways, but when it's all over and done, things happen, like World War One, or the French Revolution, World War II, the Great Depression, the death, the unexpected death of somebody, or the surprising longevity of somebody. Uh, even though at times people indeed find patterns like the market is getting bigger technology getting swifter uh, on and on we could go with things that are real and they can be charted mm-hmm. but beyond the charting I think the historian's mind goes to life in a temporal a wonderful temporal form it's wonderful in the sense that it provokes wonder not wonderful that it's pleasing and nice sometimes studying history is having an event and you you can't get rid of it's like you uh, it's like Nietzsche's rock you've ingested some thing you can't escape ingesting it but you can't digest it You, um, as we, as you move forward into the 18th century, um, you draw upon the uh, classic paradigm of scarcity versus abundance. Um, uh, you feel that that sort of paradigm of scarcity versus is that what characterizes the modern world, as opposed to the the sort of the pre well the uh, I want to say the pre-modern world, the medieval world, the ancient world. I think the. Uh, there's a lot of things involved there uh, that you can measure technically, but I think if I were to choose a first one to mine would be the end of locality. Mm. Uh, locality. I mean, there are still localities, but fundamentally, localities have been integrated, perforated, revolutionized, overturned, or integrated, centralized, democratized. They've been made part of giant markets, giant states, and great ideological systems. So even out in the village, somebody wants to talk about the whole nation. So in that way, the world is no longer local. But in another way, the second factor would be it's become integrated, accelerated, and uh, whatever word I need, I don't know, systematized. Yeah. Uh, It's been medicalized. (laughs) It's been communicated to the point that it doesn't know what it thinks sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 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 It's become, but above all, the last point to, to get to your question. Yeah. People have begun to think they can have a bounty of things or more things than they had or actually a plethora of things or unlimited things. Mm -hmm. So 
it, there's been an unchaining of dream imagining like these things every child should be all they should be so they should have everything they have do everything there's been that as a rhetoric somewhat a, a dream everyone has that they could have more and the whole wanting system has been accelerated in human experience and in, in that way scarcity is less and less every day, the matter of habit. I mean, people lived integrated and into their habits that they were going to experience scarcity. Now we've integrated it into our mind that we expect abundance. You um, make numerous uh, insights. Uh, one, that, uh, one that strikes me, which you've collected from others or you, you've mulled over yourself. One of them is, uh, I thought, I, I never thought about this before, and it was one I thought, well, why didn't I think of this before? Is that books were themselves, printed books were a mark of and a driver of individualism. Um, explain what you mean by that. This is the eight, We're talking 18th and 19th century here. Well, let's take a book as a private closet. It's a place we yeah. can go in and have a bedroom of our own, uh, to use that famous phrase. Uh, uh, meaning, consciousness gets to, uh, here we go again, gets to wall itself off. It gets to gather itself around a fireplace. Uh, so a book opens to consciousness and lets consciousness play take itself seriously, let's consciousness imagine, maybe read and remember. But it's a, it's, 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 it, it, it represents private, it represents to a degree, if not private or personal, although it can be both private and personal, it represents an individual talking to the world or talking to himself, and the book is the medium of that. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, the book talks to the person, but the pleasure or the excitement is in some way or other you talk back to the book. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I, I, I think that makes a great deal of sense to me. Um, part of this also is the, the image, uh, another thing that you draw on is, the, is walking. Uh, you've written a book on this on on foot, um, but uh, I was think as walking as a, a not just a, walking as a in a way a, a technology as a um, as an avocation that precedes say the steam engine and, and going at great speeds. We we overlook walking. You're saying at, at peril. Um, I'm thinking of Dr. John as a young man because he's too penniless to have a just walking around London at night. Um, uh -huh. That's that's avant-garde walking. You you also speak of walking much later in the in the sort of the rebuilt Paris, but walking um, travel for the wealthy and then increasingly for the middle class. Um, these are all characteristics of this of the 18th and 19th century. Oh, absolutely. Uh and the one thing we don't want to forget is smooth surfaces. Uh, kings, princes, aristocracies walk on smooth surfaces. Walking becomes, and it shows in the footwear, 
becomes more the gliding or easy movement of the foot from one step to another, okay? Whereas mm-hmm. for the peasant in the countryside, he wears clogs if he has shoes at all, <laughs> or he wears a very mm-hmm. heavy shoe. He trudges. He doesn't glide his feet. Walking is not taken out and given a special place. It's how you get the animal to the field. It's how you go pick your and pick up the fire you're going to burn. It's how the women have to go for water. Mm-hmm. Walking belongs to the landscape. It belongs to the community, and it it, it fits under requirement necessity, uh, scarcity, if you wish. It fits under those <laughs> categories. It does not fit under choice, me, dream, imagine, picturesque. And yet, what, does, what do you do in the courts, in the courtyards? You go in fancy slippers and show your pretty feet. I mean, mm-hmm. what peasant had pretty feet? Right. Once they reach 20 years old, I mean, or what doesn't have a place in their house or on the thing where they, I mean, they could buy maybe kind of energetic dancing, but generally feet weren't on, weren't on the display, mm-hmm. but, but now feet become somewhat, if I can say, walking and become becomes a means of having pleasure, mm-hmm. a stroll. Uh, the French have that lovely word flaner, which is exactly to walk. And then there's uh, and one that I always like to cite from strolling and promenading. Uh, there is window shopping. Mm-hmm. Where you and, just walk down a nice smooth sidewalk and you look in a nice, again, we're dealing with surfaces, you look through a nice glass window, yeah. you see an array of goods that you could buy or one day you might have. So I, so, I, I just counted three or four technological economic changes that are required to have the, uh, the avocation of window shopping. Uh, mm-hmm. The glass... Uh, the sidewalk, um, the lighting, if it's late mm-hmm. enough, um, all these things require the change to the technology of the city. Yeah, and safety, by the way. It, it yeah. requires zones or areas that are, if not protected from fire, at least police from thieves. Right. Um, or, or or crowds or masses, the muck and the the muck and the waste has to be hauled away too, so people feel can go a little bit in better clothing if they're upper middle or upper class, and and and, and the windows can be somewhat clean. If if I could, I want to read uh, a little bit to your to you um, from yourself. Oh yeah, sure. And have Flattery. and have you? Yeah, well, it's 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 it happens. Um, and uh, have you comment on this? Um, historians, this is from page one thirty four. Uh, historians of modern and contemporary everyday life find their minds actively switching back and forth between individual and general 
place in society, regions, and nations. No sooner do they focus on one than they point out and move towards a multiplying many. Distinctions are generated with comparisons made by the contrasts, juxtapositions, and even contradictions. And then you say, cross-hatching all these distinctions are differences inevitably drawn between worlds of village, town, and city, what is traditional and communal, and what becomes public, innovative, and flagrantly progressive. In conjunction with this, the everyday, ever exist, and this is the part I want to emphasize, every, every existing in and straddling consciousness and unconsciousness undergoes fresh bifurcations of the private and public as the real imag- and imagined redraw the ambiguous boundaries of the hidden and clandestine. Uh, mm. Could you translate that last sentence, please? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good. Whoever wrote that yeah. really had a mouthful. I mean, it really did. That guy. <laughs> That's page one twenty four. One thirty four. One thirty four. Yeah. Well, I, that's a summary. I'm glad you found that. I'm I'm writing the page down. I might be able to run it in as a quote. <laughs> I'm summarizing something I'm working now, thinking about writing a history of place, which would be which would be my last book in that series. Go from uh, uh, dust or smallness to walking mm-hmm. to surfaces every day, and now I use place. But uh, what I'm arguing here is what is it that puts our minds, and it could be collective or it could just be individual. What is it that puts, accelerates our minds and puts them in motion? Brings to them realms of constant change, and the realms are not always, uh, what do I want to say, uh, are not always consistent. Frequently, they're in considerable contradiction, if not even at war with one another, uh, outside versus inside. So there's a dialectical or a contradictory or a juxtaposed or a contrasting elements going on all the time. By the way, I took up a lot of this in the Book of Twos, mm-hmm. uh, how much the human mind works by contrast and juxtaposition. So we have all those changes going on. Now, the clandestine, to jump to the very end, which was in the last sentence, uh, this comes from the French regionalist and local writer, who who, uh, I think he still may be alive, but quite wonderful fellow named Tuilier. And uh, his notion was, that we forever live with worlds we imagine. We, we have the worlds we go. We have the worlds we think about. We have the worlds we remember, or places, if you wish, or nations, if you wish. But also in the back of our mind, there's a, a prohibited world, a taboo world, an imagined world where things happen that shouldn't happen. It's the conjured world. Probably once we attributed it, uh, speaking generally, to, to to the witch or the shaman who was conjuring an alternative 
experience, all of which aren't good. But when we walk or live in the modern world, it carries with it a dark side. And if I could add one quick sentence, I'm very intrigued just lately. It's been piling up sheets of paper on my desk. Uh, I'm very intrigued how a democracy of optimism, everyone will get this, everyone will get that, carries within its bowels, within its inner self, the potential for new levels and new types of resentment. Yeah. So as we go forward in, in with these wonderful new abundance and medical care, obviously everyone doesn't get them. Obviously everyone can't get them. Obviously a lot of people aren't even capable of taking advantage of them because of physical things or bad habits that are pinning them down. So the world can't can be a fruit tree okay let's say it is a fruit tree but not everybody can pick from that tree i'm very interested in how when somebody said we've been excluded we've been forgotten our old sacrifices don't seem to count anymore all of which goes on in a modern changing democracy filled with promise and ideology produces resentment and so i'm interested in how every day is filled with this shadow. Well, the clandestine is is another kind of shadow. It's the shadow of who and where around here are they doing taboo things. Hmm. This um, is very much related to your ideas concerning consciousness, isn't it? Um, what kind of consciousness uh, did you say? Well, I'd say modern consciousness and the way it's, oh, yes, the way it's created by this, what, what you call the um, multiplying and compounding minds. Say your work is displaced. You belong to a craft, traditional ceramic maker. You were the town blacksmith. And you get displaced. And you get displaced by something that's far away. Or you get displaced by a new economy or a new taxation system. Minimally, that forces your mind to think of other things, go in other places, and get filled with new emotions as you react to this. And invariably, we react. It doesn't have to be serious like grudge or resentment, but our minds, as our thought is mobile, so are our emotions. And one of the traits or and concerns I have is we might be going too fast for ourselves and, and the question would be uh, there's an, a word and it's from a Polish author we we insist as human beings by our structure in homeostasis and homeostasis means as beings we need repetition and continuity with it goes security sense of protection, sense of regularity, sense of continuity, very fundamental. And we usually gather those words under habits and manners. But today, habits and tradition, of course, those things tend to be on the short end. And on the long end, we get innovation. (laughs) surprise, new challenges, and the language of project progress isn't always uplifting. It's often 
<laughs> it only uplifts you insofar as it deroots you or uproots you. It uplifts. It really just pulls you out of the ground, but mm-hmm. leaves you uh, leaves you your roots dangling for how do you compose an everyday life when it's not in what was the traditional form you knew. And therefore, one last therefore, uh, the imposing power of nostalgia, invariably people dismiss nostalgia as past. But like my concept of resentment, uh, I think it might grow and I'm not alone in this. Uh, Tisson Blanc, a French writer on literature, brought this up. Uh, Eugene Weber, uh, who is a kind of a personal mentor of mine, he would bring this up. The uh, uh, um, nostalgia is alive, well, and I'm willing to say growing <laughs> the more we uproot. Now, I could be dead wrong about that. No, I, I think I think that's right. I, I think that um, – uh, so what's the – as we move towards finishing up, um, what's the is – that, is, that is that a positive thing? I mean, or you're saying – I believe that nostalgia then is double-edged in, in some way. Oh, it's terribly double-edged nostalgia. It can feed into uh, it can feed into resentment. Sure. It can feed into grudge. It can feed into idle daydreaming. It yeah. can make your emotions. I mean, we have to discipline our emotions. We always did. Uh, if you're going to live in a family, you've got to control your anger. You've got to control your moods. Or they're going to kick you out of the house if you overdo it. But uh, So controlling emotions are extremely important. Uh, I would argue just for, to suggest something. Uh, nostalgia can weaken a mind, and mm-hmm. that's when it'd be dangerous. Uh, we think of it in terms of weepy or... Uh, or use an old phrase, Jen, William James, like tender-hearted. <laughs> I think he used that tender-minded, maybe minded rather than hearted. That's not always so hot to have mm-hmm. if you're going to survive in our world. And in fact, you need to a degree an efficiency. The danger is, of course, if your mind gets too efficient you start to cut off emotions of of affection emotions that recur and we base you might say we base our civility on so if we the, all got if we all got terribly efficient and wanted to have everything be president of the united states run all of our empires and still have personal fortune coming in, which looked like the last two candidates uh, that I heard of. Uh, that's not so hot either. I mean, I think that has some problems. So what's the, um, what's the benefit of nostalgia then? You just outlined the, is, does it, is, is well, it that nostalgia uh, leads to history and nostalgia might lead to history? Nostalgia might lead to history, but it, 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 it might authenticate, you're valuing of the people who gave you life or made sacrifices for you. Uh, it might authenticate the personal value of the past. They gave up their freedom for you or they 
cooked for speaking of say mothers they cooked for you they cared for you uh, a nostalgia awakes gratitude and gratitude is certainly one of the cements of all social relations it's just not uh, it's just not I give you and you give me and it better be exactly even but there's always a disequilibrium between gifts among friends and family and the disequilibrium is compensated by loyalty and gratitude and uh, I could go on on this a long no. time I once I once wrote a book called guilt and gratitude you know, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, I'm a big fan of gratitude but then it can be exploited in the terrible Patriotisms. I mean, the patriotism that's becomes a license to kill or hate at random. I mean, this is we don't escape this ambivalence. This is that would be my whole thesis. One of my whole theses: um, everyday life has filled with more ambivalences than ever before, but there's no sight of them coming to an end. But they'll keep being poured on by change. Well, my guest today has been Joe Amato, and I'm very grateful, Joe, that you could, full of gratitude that you could uh, talk with me and so that people could listen to you and your, and your teaching, let's put it that way, because it is a teaching. Well, you're very generous. I, I, I've not had such a good set of questions about this book or many I've written. In fact, <laughs> I, I must say it was a, it was a learning <laughs> it was a learning interview for me. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.